Hello and welcome to our special focus recovery from relapse meeting. Today is Tuesday, the 10th of October, and I'm delighted to introduce our speaker, Rosie W. Rosie came to OA in 2010 in London. She's from Gloucestershire and now lives in Devon. So Rosie, we would love to hear your story. Thank you very much. Um, hello everyone. Hello recovery family. Um, really nice to see you all. I am Rosie W. I am a compulsive reader and I'm very grateful um, to be recovered just for today from a hopeless state of mind and body. Um, I am unfeasibly nervous. I, <laughs> I have no idea there were going to be this many people. Um, and I'm generally only nervous when I think that I've got to uh, impress people or get it right. And I quickly just said the fear prayer to God and what came back from God was, it's completely fine and understandable to be feeling nervous, number one. And number two, all you need to do, Rosie, is just tell your story. It's all you need to do. I have nothing other than my story to tell. Um, and I do have a relapse story of course, uh, probably, well, I imagine everyone in this room does. Um, and our relapses probably all look different. Um, I will be honest, mine looked like finishing my breakfast and um, basically then having another breakfast. Um, and if you are somebody who has gone through hell in relapse and nearly lost your life and you're thinking that's not a relapse, I hear you. I really do. Um, but for me, actually, the point is because I really I really believe that I do not have a food problem. I do not have a food illness. I have a spiritual illness. And the agony that I was in that day spiritually um, was absolutely equal to the agony that I used to feel when I was a woman who would be binging in toilets and in alleyways and in car parks and all the, the other places I used to binge. Um, I will qualify briefly. Um, I came in um, in 2010 on my knees. I am a common or garden compulsive overeater. I have no history of restriction whatsoever, none. Um, I'm a volume eater, I'm a sugar addict. And um, when I came in, I was binging all day, every day. I'm a failed anorexic and a failed bulimic. I tried many, many times to develop anorexia and bulimia and it never worked out. Um, I, <laughs> you know, I never talk about my weight. It's never even occurred to me to, but somebody, I heard somebody sharing about it last night and for whatever reason, it just really made me think that actually there is hope in that for, for people. Um, I don't have figures because I stopped weighing myself. <laughs> When I was out there, um, I came in, you know, when I was still quite young, I was uh, just coming up to 30. So um, I'm 43 now. And I so I never I never reached the weight that I probably could have done. But I, I, I believe I was roughly um, 190 pounds or maybe just over 13 stone. Um, and now I'm sort of nine stone thereabouts. Um, which is, um, I weigh about 124, I think. Um, and what, I, I say that only because I was talking to a sponsor earlier about this. I forget every single day what a miracle my life is and how I really, my roots really truly have grasped a new soil. 
I, you know, it's a new normal now to be a woman who has the same clothes year in, year out. And to, I do weigh myself sometimes, but, you know, to not need to weigh myself because I know exactly, I know it's going to be the same. Um, I forget, I forget what life was like and the agony of just watching size after size just disappear beneath me as I got bigger and bigger. You know, I forget the agony of waking up um, feeling like I need to drink five gallons of water because I've been so hard the night before that I didn't even really go to bed. I just passed out. I forget so many things. Um, and that's why I need to keep on working with others and why actually sometimes it is quite a good idea for me to uh, remember where I've come from weight wise. Um, I, I did not want to come to recovery, uh, but I'm very glad that I stayed. I was in recovery doing well for several years before I got quite ill. I did some really powerful outside work and decided that um, I no longer believed in powerlessness and thus followed a proper relapse of uh, about five years. Um, and I was I was back in the food during that time and in, in a really serious way. And I don't know what my weight went up to at that point, probably even more actually, but it was it was very, very dark and I I have to be honest, and I know this, this doesn't sound very spiritual. I, I'm not grateful for that relapse. I wish it had not happened because I had I had my first child in that time. And and I see every day the damage that I have done to him simply by being in the food during that time. I see it every single day. Um and it's a source of great pain to me. Um, equally, I have to remember that I'm now a recovered woman and I have been for quite a while um, and um, that I still cause him pain and I still cause him damage because I'm a human being. As uh, a friend often reminds me, I'm an imperfect human being with a spiritual toolkit. Um, so yeah, I came back from my relapse and I came, I, I sort of resumed doing food the way I always had, which was, um, uh, abstinent according to my definition but my definition back then uh, left space for so much compulsive overeating so much yes I wasn't eating sugar yes I wasn't binging but I was doing I was doing things that essentially blocked me from God I was dealing with my feelings by putting things in my mouth and they were abstinent things and they mostly happened at the right time of day mostly and they were mostly in a sort of fairly decent quantity um, but I was still putting a lot of things in my mouth uh, rather than turning to God. And I'd been back for about a year when I just thought this is not working for me. And and I heard somebody speak in a meeting and she uh, introduced me to the big book in, in the way that I know it now. I always studied the big book, but um, not in that kind of word by word um, way that I do now. And that's when my life really changed. And I found out what it meant to be entirely abstinent. And, and you know, and I've been practicing that ever since, apart from the incident I mentioned earlier, where I basically had two breakfasts and, and very much had to call that a relapse because it was spiritually, I was I was dead at that point. Um, I was walking back from the school run earlier and I was just thinking um, about what I was going to say today. And um, God just delivered a load of stuff like God always does when I seek God, when I honestly seek God. And um, God suggested that rather than talk about what led to the relapse, um, although that is going to come into it, that I talked about what I did to get out of it and to stay out of it. Um, 
And there are sort of there are six things that I um, that I identified as being key in what I did. And the first one um, was to get a new sponsor. There is no sponsor on this earth who is responsible for me picking up the food. <laughs> it was not her fault that I picked up the food. It had nothing to do with her and everything to do with me. However, my sponsor at the time was talking more and more about moving away from weighing and measuring her food and moving away from a plan of eating and in fact moving away from the idea of abstinence altogether because for her it, it had become a sort of a shaming concept rather than a loving concept uh, this woman still has beautiful recovery and is recovered and has an incredible relationship with god and that's really working for her i did many many years in recovery without weighing and measuring and it's i don't think it's a solution for everyone but i accept today that it is a solution for me um I, I've generally found that fellows of mine who can survive without weighing and measuring are fellows who have a history of restriction. And I don't. I'm a common or garden binge eater. And for me, the most loving thing to do and the thing that has brought me so much closer to God, to God has been to weigh and measure my food. And so I needed to find a new sponsor who was doing what I knew that I needed to do to get well. And um, it was frightening. I didn't want to call anyone. I didn't want to tell anyone that this had happened to me because I'm rosy and I have long-term recovery and, you know, I, I know what I'm doing. I get it right. Um, I have sponsees, past and present. They, you know, I, what? Um, and yet I got on the phone straight away. And the idea that we should just bite the hand off the first person, a recovered person who offers us service, I'm not entirely sure I agree. I certainly don't agree with... Um, interviewing your sponsor either giving them a list of your criteria but um I realized that there were things that were important to me firstly they had to be somebody who went through the big book line by line um I don't get as much value from things like podcasts and written exercises even though I have many friends for whom that works beautifully secondly they do need to be somebody who is able to share their experience strength and hope of working with a weight and measured food plan uh, because you know it has it's been made very clear to me uh, that I am somebody who needs to do that. And thirdly, actually, it um, for me, I realised that I needed to, to to work with somebody whose recovery I knew and trusted, actually. And and I and I don't know or trust the recovery of the first available sponsor who offers themselves, even though I think it's an incredible service. I realised that you know I wanted to work with somebody who was who was visible in their recovery, who was showing up in meetings and and sharing, and not the person who shares every single day, every you know every meeting they're in. You know, not I wasn't after a superstar sponsor. Um, I just wanted somebody who I could see was visibly working um, this a, da a daily program according to the big book, um, which, as I said, for me is the only thing that is. Is, has really, really worked and, and really brought me close to God, because that's what I mean when I say some things work. Um, and and I realised that the people I knew who um, fitted those credentials were friends. You know, I've I've made an effort to surround myself by with um, wonderful people who um, whose recovery I trust. And so I swallowed my pride and I started calling my friends and I had a list. And some of the people in this meeting were on that list. Um, I never got as far as them because actually the second friend that I called was available. Um, and so I started working the steps with her and and I'm so grateful. You know, I she for me is the perfect sponsor because she's a really beautiful mix of um, really rigorous in her recovery and straight down the line with no messing and no bullshitting. But she's really human 
she's not going to set fire to the big book and throw it at my head if if I don't do things her way. Um, she's she's a human being who really has space for the fact that I'm a mother of young children. I work, I run a farm, I've got ADHD. Like there are, you know, I'm not perfect. Um, anyway, that was my first thing. I got a sponsor, the right sponsor, and I got the right sponsor quickly. Um, and the second thing I did was to get really honest. And for me, you know, another way of putting of of expressing step one is that we got really bloody honest with ourselves and we stopped telling ourselves lies um when I was calling you know friends saying oh my god I've had a relapse like help um I was saying things like I honestly don't know what happened I've been working my program so hard I truly don't know where this came from you know I hadn't been resting on my laurels bullshit uh I had been um and, and, and actually no the truth is that's not fair the truth is I was still working hard on my program but my eye had strayed you know my eye was not on the ball my eye was not on steps 10 to 12 um I was doing step 10 and 12 every single day but there was some you know there were some really key problems in my practice my step 10 practice had got too complicated for starters so I was actually frequently missing step 10s um because I didn't have time to pick up the phone and spend 10, 15 minutes on the phone to someone. So I wasn't doing it at all. That didn't work either. And the other big problem was with my step 12. I'll talk about this more in a minute, but I was, I was working with people who didn't really want to get well. And I, and I kept doing it and I kept sticking with them because I didn't want to have to say, I'm really sorry, but you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm the right sponsor with you for you because I don't like being disliked. And so there was a lot of selfishness in there too. Um, so I had to get really, really honest about, you know, it's always it's always been part of my program. You know, if, if I'm if I'm not feeling good, you know, what, what, what's missing? But I wasn't being honest with myself. I was, you know, when I did my nightly review at the end of the day and I wasn't doing a nightly review every day either. Actually, that's another key thing. I mean, I was doing it in my head, but that's generally for me, that's not enough because I'm, you know, I'm a compulsive liar, especially to myself. Um. Yeah, when I looked at my nightly reviews, every night there were, you know, there were multiple resentments I hadn't inventoried. And and again, as I said, you know, I was working with people, I was working with a woman who um, every morning when I spoke to her, it was basically a fight. I mean, I wasn't fighting her, but I, bas I, I would spend 30 minutes every day listening to her, taking pot shots at me and my recovery, but more importantly, pot shots at the big book, um, which is fine. You know, she's welcome to believe that, but I cannot carry the message to somebody who doesn't want to hear it. And the big book tells me very clearly that it's my job to carry the message and the message that it wants me to carry is the message of the 12 steps. Um, so that was the second thing I did. I had to get really, really honest about what had happened. And the third thing I had to do, which is a really important thing, was I had to make a declaration to myself. And I'm looking down here because I'm reading it. I have it written out. And that declaration, and I did it in quite a formal way. I sort of sat down with myself. And the declaration was, in a time of spiritual wellness, connection and honesty, I know that my recovery depends upon two things. Following the steps exactly as laid out in the big book and following a weighed and measured food plan. Minutes, Rosa. Lovely. Thank you very much. Yeah. And following a weighed and measured food plan. And that means that if I sort of try and have a conference with myself about weighing and measuring and you know if I start getting into that thinking of oh you know food plans are just sort of control it's just you know my way of trying to impose you know human 
power and self-will onto my life. It's not it's not truly surrendering. When I start having those thoughts, which are very true and, and real for some people, I, you know, just to reiterate. But when I start having them, for me and all I've learned about the the, the, the nature of my disease, um, I can go back to that statement and I can read it out and I can get to the end of it and realise, ah, no, this is a mental obsession. That's what's happening. A mental obsession is not only talking to me, but I'm listening. The fact that I'm even here with my declaration that I made to myself means that I am listening to the mental obsession. And actually for me with food, when it comes, you know, when it comes to that, when it comes down to it, if I can just ask myself, is this a mental obsession or is this real? Is this you, God, or is this a mental obsession? It's really easy. You know, the answer is always there. I always know. And in fact, to be honest, if I'm even asking myself, is this a mental obsession or is this God? I would say nine times out of 10, it's a mental obsession. That was the third thing I did. I made a declaration to myself and I wrote it out and it's there. And so I know that that is my truth when I'm at my most spiritually well. And I've got that. It's sacrosanct. Um, the fourth thing I did was to go through the steps quickly. Uh, we've been going for a while and I actually said to my sponsor, you know, I don't want to tell you how to do it, but do you think there's a way we could move through more quickly? Like, do you think we could do some more sessions? And she said, yes. And we got through it more quickly. And um, and again, I, I, I don't really know why it, it's helpful for me to go through it more quickly. Um, I don't mean crazy quickly. Um, I think I think I'm just fundamentally um, lazy and unfocused. And I also have ADHD and my brain goes all over the place. You know, I'm sure all of us do, but, you know, I. Mine is a particularly bad case. And um, I need to be focused on a daily basis on the message of recovery and on moving through those steps and taking action uh, daily. And that's why for me, it really worked. So that was the fourth thing I did. And um, the fifth thing I did when I'd finished the steps was to, you know, touching back on something that I, I mentioned earlier was to make an absolute baseline commitment to myself to really closely examine my steps 10 to 12 whenever I'm having a bad day. What is missing? Um, and another way of doing that, which um, my first big book sponsor showed me was to go to the title page of the big book and to look at the AA logo um, <clears throat> and to ask my and to ask myself which of those those elements of my program are missing. Um, but almost always, if my nightly review carries uh, resentments, fears, and uh, resentments and fears that I haven't put through an inventory of some sort, um, then I haven't been doing enough step 10. And um, the way I do step 10 has changed. I used to, I mean, I still do daily. Uh, we'll do a proper inventory on the phone with somebody or I'll write it first and then I'll share it or I'll text it to someone. But actually what I do now is um, I have a friend who, with whom I just exchange spot checks throughout the day. And there are a couple of sentences. Um, and I will just say, you know, I've been selfish. I just try to prog march the kids into whatever you know at high speed and shouting at them whatever and um and i will as the big book says i will ask god to remove that defect immediately 
and then I'll move on, making an amend where necessary, where I've harmed someone. Um, and yeah, as I said, you know, being more careful with the sponsees that I that I work with, and and you know, I don't want to, I don't want to sound judgmental because I'm not, you know, I'm all of the things that I'm about to describe. I'm all of them, and I have fought back with sponsors. I've argued stuff. I've I've been belligerent and sulky and superior, and I always I've needed to know better. And I've always, you know, and I'm there with, you know, feedback. I am that person too. However, I've really come to see that um, it's actually very simple. If if I am having to call my sponsor about somebody that I'm sponsoring, there's a very good chance that that person that I'm sponsoring probably doesn't really want to get well. And um, that I probably at some point need to consider terminating that relationship in a really loving way and you know I really believe in helping somebody find a new sponsor if, if it's not possible for me to carry on with them um but if I'm you know and, and in a similar way of looking at it if I'm having to do step tens on sponsees which of course we will all have to do occasionally you know if we have found time in an insanely crazy day to speak to a sponsee and they've forgotten to call or something's come up you know I will probably need to do a step 10 not always actually often it's not I'm really grateful for that spare half hour that I wasn't going to have um, but, you know, of course, I will have to occasionally do step tens on sponsees. But if I'm having to do them more than a tiny handful of times, again, it's a, it's a sign. And I have to ask myself, is this person, does this person really want to hear the message of recovery? Am I able to carry it to them? Because if I'm being prevented from carrying it to them, because I'm not saying things that, you know, I'm not I'm not sort of reflecting back stuff from the big book that's important. Um then I can't carry the message and therefore I can't get well when I'm working with that person. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't put my sponsee through a screening process, although I have gone through phases of that. And I used to have quite a complicated email until quite recently, you know, which I'd send them and ask them to sort of tell me if they agreed to it. But um, I do ask them quite a few questions and I'm a lot more fearless now about asking uncomfortable questions too. Uh, one of which, of course, is always, are you willing to go to any lengths? Yes. No, 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 no. But really, <laughs> really, what are you, you know, what are you not willing to do? Um, what are you nervous that I'm going to do or say? Um, because the joy, the joy of it is of taking on somebody who really is ready and really is willing is that I don't have to be a bossy sponsor. And I'm really not, actually. You know, I really don't get involved with sponsees foods. I mean, I will answer questions if they ask me, but I'm really you know, I would never feedback on what a sponsee is eating unless they were having problems and asking me. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't, um, I don't have rules. I get, you know, I say, this is how I got well. These are the things that I did every day. Are you willing to do them? But I'm not here to tell somebody off if they're not doing that. And the joy of, of, of only agreeing to work with people who are really, truly ready is that I don't need to be a detective. You know, all of the sort of passive aggressive things that, you know, I'm sure all of us have found ourselves doing, um, I don't need to do that if I'm working with somebody who's really willing and ready. Um, and then this, the sixth thing that I did, it's actually sort of two things and they're not even really related. So I guess there's seven, but that's perfectionist in me. I like the idea of six because that's what the Oxford groups had. Um, number one is to cease fighting. And I, I did a lead share on this recently, which I can point anyone to if they're interested, if they feel that they're 
they're constantly in a fight between their recovery and the rest of their life. Like, how, how do I do this? And when they feel that they're constantly in a battle trying to get all of their recovery done, I can point you towards that. Not because not because I think I have all the answers in that share, by the way, <laughs> just because I spoke about it at length and gave lots of examples. But yeah, I had to get really realistic and to cease fighting um, the reality of my life, which is that I've got two young kids, one of whom is possibly both, but definitely one of whom is very neurodiverse and very difficult. Um, I do not want my children to grow up the way that I did, which is with a parent who tells them all the time, I love you, Rosie, I love you, but is not present for me. That is not what I want my kids to grow up with. Um, and so, you know, my reality is, is that God's work for me is that I need to be with my kids. And so there are loads of meetings I don't get to that I would love to. There are loads of service opportunities that I would like to be able to give, but I can't. If my children are in my house and they're awake, then it is God's work for me to be with them. Um, unless they don't want to be with me, of course, in which case, great. Um, but yeah, so I've had to cease fighting that and stop trying to shoehorn in step 10 calls and meetings and sponsee calls, you know, that all of that stuff I have to share with my job and uh, with, you know, and, and doing the time when my children are asleep or out of the house, basically. Um I've had to cease fighting in so many areas of my life to stop trying to force parts of my recovery that are not God's will. And, you know, I, I everyone's God is different, but my God is very personal, intuition kind of a God. And there are certain things that I see fellows doing that would kill me. And there are certain things that I do that would kill my fellows. And I have to listen to God and keep my head out of what my fellows are That's doing. That's 25 minutes, Rosie. Lovely. I will wrap up. So that's, yeah, that's 6A. <laughs> 6B um, is to go to other fellowships if I need them. And I say this because my primary example is I'm a very, very sick workaholic. Uh, not workaholic in a traditional sense. I don't have problems with my work boundaries. I'm a work avoidant, in fact. My problem is compulsive doing and compulsive activity. I'm really, really sick with that stuff. I, I need that fellowship, Workaholics Anonymous, possibly even more than I need OA a lot of the time. And I cannot, um, if I'm not leading life with broad margins, really broad margins, I really struggle with food. You know, my 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 eating plan is enough to keep me going through a normal day with normal waking hours and a normal amount of sleep and you know and a moderate amount of exercise it is not enough to keep me going through um hours and hours you know when I'm not getting enough sleep or loads of exercise or loads of activity that's not the food plan that you know that that's not what my food plan was designed for and so if I'm to keep my food safe I need to practice you know I need to be working an active program in that fellowship I'm actually a member of, of, you know, several fellowships and I, you know, I dip my toe in and out. But um, the main reason for me to go to other fellowships is that the main reason that for me that I sponsor, it's the same thing. I have to be reminded frequently. I have to be exposed to the message, not just of recovery, but of the disease. I have to remind myself of how sick I am and of what my problem looks like because I lie to myself every day. And I have to be reminded very frequently of what abstinent behaviour looks like. I could not get abstinent from the food if I were just in AA. I'm actually, AA is one of the few fellowships I'm not a member of. But, um, you know, how many of us have come here from AA 
beaten and desperate. You know, I cannot get abstinent unless I've learned what abstinence even looks like and what it means. Um, so that's why I made a promise to myself that if I needed to visit a fellowship, then I would, and I would not continue with this, what is for me a lie that, well, if my connection with God is good enough, then, you know, that thing will be taken care of because that has not been my experience. I wish it was. I do know people who've been able to do that. It's not been mine. I have to keep seeing the problem and I have to keep being reminded of how incredibly sick I am and I have to be keep being exposed to the solution. So those are the sort of six and a half things uh, that I can see that I did as a result of the relapse I had um, at the beginning of this year. Um, and and they're working. I've, I'm in a really, really difficult place in my life right now. I've had a, re had a recent medical diagnosis, which is it's, it's life changing, actually. It's um, yeah, it's 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 a big deal. And it's turned my life upside down every day. Um, and thank God that my recovery with my food is solid at the moment. Um, my recovery, well, my recovery with everything is solid in that I'm taking it to God every day and I'm doing my best uh, because I would be in that in the food right now if if it wasn't for that. I um, yeah, things could get very frightening very quickly. So thank God for God is all I can say. I'm so glad you're all here. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I hope that something I have said might be helpful to someone. And if not, it's been really helpful for me at least <laughs> to share my story. With that, I'll pass.